Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. It is kind of a mount. John was right. So, all right. Here's our scripture that Todd's going to be preaching from. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you will rema- that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, um, we can count on your word so much. Your mercies are new every morning. You promise us hope and you promise us a future. Just as you did with Israel, you do in our lives. While you correct us, you also rebuild us and you make us new. And we love you for that. And I pray for my friend Todd, for Stephanie, Ethan, Caleb, and Will, at both for Todd as he, pray, as he preaches today, that you fill him with your Holy Spirit and you give him the words that we need to hear in our hearts and he needs to hear in his heart. Also, Lord, that for my friend and his family, that you would just bless them richly, that you would guide them, give them wisdom, and I pray that this move that they're stepping out in faith on, that you just bless them beyond what they could ever, ever imagine. And we just pray for protection and courage for them, and and, uh, we're so honored to have them in our congregation and as friends. So we love you, and thank you for all you do for us. It's in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, Lloyd. (laughs) This morning, kids are great, right, because they always just say what they want to say. And this morning when the kids were heading back to Cornerstone Kids, I was sitting at the end of the aisle, and so one of the kids had to walk by, and he looks at me and goes, when are you leaving? (laughs) (laughs) Next week. Next week's my last week. (laughs) You're going to have to see me again. It was great. Uh, You know, it's interesting thinking about, like, God's plans and, like, when he starts to put things into motion. I was was thinking about this move for us and, uh, like... It's hard to pinpoint, okay, this is when God started working this plan out because God's been working in our lives since before we were born, right? Uh, But my wife and I have been talking for about two years about, and just praying, God, what do you have next for us? And uh, in the midst of that, uh, this move uh, started started just coming up. We just started talking about it as, as we were praying, God, what's next for us? And 
uh, about this time last year, we started talking a bit more seriously about it. And uh, I was in a place where I was like, I like, this sounds great. I'm not ready to seriously have this conversation yet. And that's because I'm a control person. I, like, I want to have uh, like no, no loose threads. I want everything to be all lined up. I, I, I want plan A to be perfectly in place. I need to be pretty confident about that. And then in the back of my head, I want to have plan B just in case plan A doesn't work. And then really, I want to have plan C. Like I'm already thinking that out, even though I'm confident about plan A. And we, we hit this place in October. Uh, Steph was like in a more trusting place than I was in terms of God's plans. And I was, I was struggling. And uh, we had this morning where Steph like kind of shifted into my seat. And she was like, oh, man, I don't know how this is going to work. And for whatever reason, that like emboldened me. No, we're doing this. Uh, and I was uh, in the car on the way to church that morning. And I was listening to a sermon uh, by Louis Giglio, who's a guy that I've looked up to for a long time, and he was preaching on Joshua, and uh, Joshua, like, encouraging the Israelites that God's given us the promised land. We just have to go take it. And Joshua acknowledges that there are obstacles in the promised land, right? That there's this great army, these giants, and this mighty wall, and we're not really sure how this is all going to work out, but but God is going ahead of us. And so I was listening to this and thinking, yes, this is like what we're doing isn't just a journey for our family, but it's a, it's a discipleship journey. It's a, a journey of trust. And in that moment, I felt like God began asking me, do you trust me? And, and what I began learning is that the answer is yes, but there's a lot of reluctance there. It was interesting because on October 24th, I texted Steph, we're doing this. And Steph and I had conversations over the next couple of nights. We're saying, I, like, this feels like it's a, a discipleship journey and a journey of trust. And Steph's like, yeah, I've known that for a while, right? She's quicker than I am. What's interesting is my reluctance to trust then played out over the next six months of me, like, trying to figure out how are we going to make this work, Right? Because I wanted plan A, I want plan B, and I want plan C. And in the midst of like self-professing, this is a discipleship journey, it's a journey of trust, I wasn't willing to trust. I was trying to figure out how to make things work on my own. In the midst of that, I have to play the role of pastor as well. And so uh, we started January 1 going through the Old Testament. And I've preached about four or five times uh, in the spring, and it's interesting because as I was going through this journey of trust, I began to see that's what the Old Testament is about. Like you sum it up over and over and over again, the Old Testament is the question, do you trust me? So listen to these sermons. I didn't pick out the text that I was preaching on. John, John essentially said, I would like you to preach this week, and I would like you to preach this week. So that's how I ended up with Ezekiel, right? But it's also how I ended up in January with Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, which is the call of Abram, right? Things have gone really bad in God's creation, and so God decides to intervene, and so he reaches out, and he calls this man named Abram, and he says, Abram, go to the land that I will show you, right? Take everything that you have, pack it up, and go to the land that I will show you. Abram 
has no idea where he's headed. He just trusts God, at least initially. God's asking, do you trust me? And so Abram goes. God gives Abram these promises, right? Like, I will make you the father of a great nation, and that nation will be a blessing to all the other nations. And so Abram does. He, he goes. He demonstrates faith and trust, at least at first, right? And then Abram begins looking at his circumstances. God's promised him that he's going to be the father of this great nation, but he doesn't have any kids, and he's getting older in his age. And so Abram, rather than trusting God, decides, I'm going to try to like, figure out how to make this work myself, right? And so he goes and he gets his wife's Egyptian slave, and he sleeps with her in order that they might start having kids so they can grow this family that God has promised them. Abram decides to do things on his own. And as we've read through the Old Testament, we see how that leads to, to catastrophe. The next sermon that I was asked to preach was on Jacob. Jacob's like one of my favorite characters. Jacob inherits from birth the promises that were made to Abraham. Jacob inherits the promises of God that, that he is, he's going to be now the father of this great nation as well. But Jacob spends the entirety of his life trying to do things on his own, right? There's this climactic moment in Jacob's life where he's running away basically from his bad decisions. And he has this confrontation with God and he's wrestling with God and, and ultimately as much as Jacob knows how, surrenders, asking God to bless him. Then I was asked to preach on Numbers, and Numbers is a, a great story. I, I'd never really spent much time in Numbers because it's the Israelites wandering around in the desert. God's promised them this promised land, and uh, they're wandering in the desert. Actually, on their way there, it should have been a direct route, Right? But the Israelites know that there's giants and there's another nation in the land to which God has promised them. And so they began to not trust God. Ah, there's a giant over there. There's armies over there. Surely we can't take this. And they lose their trust. And as a consequence, they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years because God asked them, do you trust me? And ultimately, they're reluctant to do so. And then uh, was asked to preach on Jonah, another story that I love, because God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, like, which is where the enemies of Israel are, and to preach to them the, the good news of, of, of God. And Jonah goes in the opposite direction, uh, in some ways because he doesn't trust God, and then in other ways because he really does. He's wrestling with this idea uh, of trust. So as we're moving through the Old Testament, uh, what, what has struck me, like if I was to sum up our journey through the Old Testament so far, and some of this is because I feel like my journey's paralleling with it as well, is this overarching theme that God has a plan. God has the plan, but he gives his people steps. God has the plan, but he gives his people steps. And the Old Testament is as long as it is, is because God's people wrestles with trusting him. If God's people trusted him, I think the Old Testament would be much shorter. But I'm glad it's long, because I am reluctant to trust God as well. God has the plan. He gives his people steps. Like I said, in the Old Testament, we see that Israel, the people of God, his people, 
are reluctant to trust him over and over and over and over again. And it, it ultimately culminates with where we are now at the end of the Old Testament with God's people living in exile. God's people living in judgment and discipline because of their failure over and over and over again to trust God. God had made essentially what Israel understood as four promises to them. And so as you as we're reading through the Old Testament, we're understanding like the Israelite theology at the time, there's four things that are of utmost importance for us to understand in order to understand what's going on in the Old Testament and in order for us to understand the weight of exile. These four promises, they started with Abraham and then they, they were made to God's people over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament in spite of their disobedience. And those four promises are summed up in this. Number one, that Israel would be God's chosen people. And part of Israel's understanding of this was not only that they would be God's people and that God would be their God, right, but that God would, like, would extend to them a certain amount of special protection. So when, you're, when we're reading the Old Testament, we're trying to understand the Old Testament theology, the, the idea that Israel is God's chosen people is central to that. Another part of that promise is that, and that theology is that God has promised them this, this special land, which we've talked about, the promised land. We've read about that over and over again. Abram is told, go to the land that I will show you, the promised land. So chosen people, the promised land. The third piece is the, is the idea of the Davidic dynasty. So when, when David is set as king over Israel, the promise God makes to them is that someone from one of David's descendants will, will constantly, will consistently rule over the Israelites. Important to understand in terms of Israel's theology. And the last one is that God promises his people that he will dwell with them in the temple. And so as we're reading the prophets and the minor prophets, and we're reading about what's happening towards the end of the Old Testament, it's not just that people are, that the Israelites are now living in a foreign land, Right? But it, it looks like God's promise of his protection and of him, of the Israelites being his special chosen people has been removed. It looks like the promise of the land has been removed. It looks like the promise of, of one of the descendants of David ruling over Israel has been removed because they're now living under Babylonian rule. And with the destruction of the temple, in Ezekiel chapter 33, it looks like the promise of God dwelling with his people has been removed as well. We talked last week about this idea of exile, that Ezekiel chapters 1 through 32 are like they're brutal chapters because they're chapters of judgment and of discipline and that this is what it looks like when we fail to trust God, that there are consequences to this. And there's this sense of, of exile, of, broke, of brokenness, right? And not just brokenness within, but it looks like God's not going to be faithful to his promises either. And we talked about last week that we like to like rush through that and get to like God's renewal and restoration, but there's something about us resting in that sense of exile that reminds us of our utter dependence on God. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, we see the culmination of that judgment and discipline play out when the temple is destroyed. Now, the good news is Ezekiel doesn't end there, that there's this beautiful message of hope that flows through the entirety of the rest of the, prophet, uh, the prophet's writing 
in Ezekiel, and I want us to read that, but I want to say this, first of all, before we get to God's promises, I think it's important for us to remember our needs and to remember where the Israelites were sitting and where they were hearing this when they were hearing it. The Israelites were living in the midst of exile. And maybe some of you are living in that same place. You're living with brokenness or darkness, and maybe it's out of a broken relationship or a hurtful situation or some sense of loss or there's some sense of grief in your life or you found yourself in this season of sin and your heart's been hardened and you're sitting there thinking, I have no idea how God can redeem this. When Ezekiel was writing and speaking these words to the Israelites, that's where they were living. Hope was shattered. And as much as Israel had had trouble trusting God throughout the entirety of Old Testament, in the midst of exile, that had to have been the hardest place. Because these four things Israel was looking for in terms of God's faithfulness seemed broken at the time. And so maybe you're living there. God promises goodness and grace and mercy, and I'm just not experiencing that. Or, Or God promises the abundant life, and I'm experiencing anything but abundance. And in the midst of that, I want you to hear these words from Ezekiel. And as you're hearing these words, I want you to hear that God initiates every one of the promises that we're about to read through. It's interesting because if you read Ezekiel and you understand those promises made to Israel, Ezekiel is about to demonstrate how God is going to actually fulfill every and be faithful to every one of the promises that he's made to Israel. It's just not necessarily in the way Israel expected it. And I believe that that's true for you as well. God will be faithful to his promises. It just may not be in the way that you anticipate it. So as I say that, I encourage you, grab your Bibles or grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, If you're using a Pew Bible, we're going to start on page 1237. And I'm just going to read some of these passages because Ezekiel speaks these in such beautiful ways. And I want you to hear those four promises to Israel being restored. We're going to start in chapter 34, verses 29 through 31. This is God speaking, Ezekiel speaking God's words. He says this, I will provide for Israel a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people. Promise one, chosen people. I will be their God, and they will be my people restored. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Speaks that this over each one of us. I, you are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Then in chapter 36, it's interesting because remember, what's led Israel into exile is their own sin and the hardening of their heart. If God's going to restore their promises, it can't just be something done externally, but has to be done within the hearts of the Israelites as well. And we see that play out in chapter 36. So verses 26 through 29. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. It's that promise of land. You are my chosen people, and I'm giving you the promise of this land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. You just saw that in baptism. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. God is beginning to restore. He's initiating. He's undoing all of the brokenness that Israel has created for itself. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And then in chapter 37, verses 24 through 28, we're going to see the third part of this promise restored of the Davidic kingdom. And not only restored, but the divided kingdom, if you've been reading along with us, is going to be reunited as well, right? So if we remember how the kingdom was split as we were reading through the kings, we're going to see that God's intention is to restore. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And so as we get to the New Testament and we read this genealogy in Matthew and you wonder why would you start the story of Jesus with the genealogy, it's placing Jesus in the line of David. And and that should be significant for us as we've read through the Old Testament. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. This is like he's beginning to talk about the temple will be restored as well. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And then in chapters 40 through 46, we see the restoration of the temple, like described in detail. So the Israelites are living in exile, and they're thinking these promises of God, God appears to not be faithful, and Ezekiel is reminding them, no, these promises are still real, they're still alive, in fact, God's going to do the, like fulfill these in ways greater than you can imagine. But then we come to Ezekiel chapter 47. And it seems like for the Israelites, if you were one of the Israelites hearing this, okay, God's restored his promises. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again that Israel has a myopic view of what God desires to do in and through them. Israel has this view that it's kind of all about them, that this chosenness and these promises are all about them. And God's going to remind the Israelites once again in this beautiful way that all of this is being done for the renewal of all things. And we see that in chapter 47. This is so beautiful. Some of you might want to follow along reading, but if you're more of a visual person, I would encourage you to close your eyes because I would... Like, this is a vision, I think, for Cornerstone. Let's share this together. This is, Ezekiel's been talking about the temple and what it's going to look like. And 47, verse 1, starts with this. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, the place where God lives. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was just trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was now ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was now knee deep. And then he measured another thousand from the temple and led me through water that was now up to the waist. And then he measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah to the Jordan Valley where it enters the Dead Sea. And if you've been to the Dead Sea before, the Dead Sea is like at the bottom of this desert and it's it's water that is so salty that you can't drink it. And if you have like... Nothing grows there because the water is so salty. It's dead water. It doesn't bring life to you. If you drink it, it doesn't quench your thirst. It just makes you thirstier. It's, it's dead. It's barren. There is no life there. When this river empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Even the dead sea is renewed. Swarms of living creatures will live where the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, there will be life. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to the other place. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. But fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. As I read chapter 47 over the last two weeks, I kept thinking about Cornerstone. I kept thinking about this, right? Chapter 47 in Ezekiel is like our chapter in many ways. If, if Cornerstone is all about being a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, Ezekiel chapter 47 demonstrates for us the renewal of all things. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this sanctuary, I was thinking about these doors, and I was thinking about this idea of water, like flowing out under the threshold, down the doorsteps and out into Tulsa. And and as I thought about that, I thought we demonstrate that every week when each one of us walks through those doors, right? With the living water, we go out for renewal. This isn't just about God's promises to us. It's about God's promise for the renewal of all things. And as God's doing new things in us, The whole point of it is that we would then go out and be seeds of renewal with those around us. 
And here's the thing. Renewal's happening here. Renewal's happened for my, for my family. I came tired and broken. And frankly, I had played the role of pastor, but I came hard-hearted. And my heart was softened because I got to gather here with you all. You all came seeking renewal as well. We did this together. You, you provided a place for me of living water because you were willing to be vulnerable as well. I've found renewal because I've found renewal. My family has found renewal as well. I've gotten to watch other people experience renewal also. There's other dads in here that I don't know exactly what their faith looked like before they showed up here, but being in here, like, God did something in their hearts. I've seen people creating renewal as they volunteered in children's ministry, and as we've gathered for prayer on Thursdays, faithfully there's a group that has gathered for prayer on Thursdays. Renewal is taking place here, and renewal is taking place in ways that we don't even recognize yet. And here's the thing for me. I'm so hopeful because I have all the confidence in the world that renewal will continue to happen in the life of Cornerstone if Cornerstone keeps its focus in the right place. I said earlier, and this is true for us as well, just like the Israelites didn't know how when they were hearing Ezekiel like describe this river flowing, right? They're still living in exile. They have no idea how God's going to fulfill this. And I think that's true for us as well. As we pray that we want to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, we don't know what that renewal is going to look like. We don't know how it's going to play out. Because just like for the Israelites, God has the plan and he gives us the steps. We're responsible for the steps. We have to trust him with the plan. I don't know how it's going to play out. God has the plan. He extends to us the steps. And if that's true, if we're not going to know the overarching plan and yet we've got to take this step and then we've got to take this step, then that means the Christian life at its core demands a spirit of adventure. The Christian life at its core demands a spirit of adventure. And it's a spirit of adventure that brings you guys here this morning. It was a spirit of adventure that like four or five or six years ago that God placed in John and Emily's heart to plant a church. They had no idea how this was going to work out. I was there when John first started talking about it. We couldn't have possibly pictured this. I couldn't have anticipated that their step would be a means of renewal for my family. What step is God asking you to take? You have no idea what kind of like, what kind of river, that little step, that little trickle, that, that like vulnerability that you take, that spirit of adventure. God, I can't believe you're calling me to do this, but I'm going to take a step. I don't know how this is going to work out. You have no idea what kind of roaring river that will turn into. It, it might be showing up for prayer on Thursdays. It might be just... The simple prayer, asking God, God, what's next? What's next? You have no idea what that prayer might lead to. Or, or maybe it's to begin praying for your kids. Or maybe you and your spouse are in a difficult place and God's prompting you to 
pray for your spouse, or maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive that you're like, I don't, I don't know what difference it will make. God's asking you to take the step. He has the plan. He's got it under control. We are responsible to take the steps. In a couple weeks, we're going to start talking about apprentice groups here as we begin to launch the New Testament. And maybe you've been reluctant to be a part of a small group because you're ashamed of your story. You're ashamed of the lack of knowledge you have of the Bible. Whatever the case might be, I would encourage you be vulnerable. Embrace a spirit of adventure and take a step, trusting that God has a plan in place. The most beautiful thing, I think, about the prophecy of Ezekiel is like the last couple of words. If you flip over to chapter 48 and look at how the book ends, somebody shout out what the book ends with. What's the last line? The Lord is there. The Lord is there. The Israelites are living in in exile, thinking that God has abandoned them. The best news that they can get. The source of greatest hope is to know the Lord is there. In Hebrew, it's the words uh, Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. And so as God's asking you to take that next step, whatever it may be, the Lord is here. And if that next step leads you to another place, the Lord is there as well. Yahweh Shema. We can be confident to take the steps because God has the plan. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this community. Um, I thank you for the ways that you're already moving. And God, I, it, in, some ways, like, in some ways, it starts small. It's a, it's a trickle. It's, it's two people praying and saying, yes, Lord, here I am. And then it's 10 people gathering together for prayer. And then it's 50 or 60 people, and then it's 300, and those 300 are blessing others who are blessing others who are blessing others, and God, that's the way your good news works. This trickle turns into a roaring river. God, I pray that you would continue to nudge us to take steps, that you continue to nudge us to trust you, as you continue to give us things God, we're, we're, like, we're reluctant to do it. God, your response is, do you trust me? God, would you give us softened hearts Lord, so that without reluctance, God, we can say, I trust you confidently because you are faithful, because you are here, and because, God, you are there as well. Father, we thank you for uh, communion when we're reminded that you are here present with us in the bread and in the juice. And God, that you are faithful to fulfill your promises, God, in ways that go far beyond what we could ever expect. God, that your promises are bigger than we could ever hope for. God, we come trusting your faithfulness this morning. Amen.